Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapter 28. We'll be looking at verses uh, 23 through 29. And uh, this section deals primarily with the unbelief of the Jews that Paul was teaching in Rome. So in Acts chapter 8, we'll pick it up starting in verse 23. And I'll read down through verse 29. So as I'm reading the inspired Word of God, uh, I encourage you to listen with faith and with reverence. Verse 23. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And these would be the Jewish people that he had invited to, uh, to come. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your father, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise... They might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. And when he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. And may God bless the reading of his word. So Paul is in Rome. He is in his rented quarters. He's still incarcerated uh, by the Roman government. But a great number of Jews have come to him because they know that he's a spokesman for Christianity. They haven't heard anything from Jerusalem about the charges against him. But Paul has a reputation. How can he not have a reputation? So everyone was saying, you know, one of the leaders of the Christian sect is here. So the Jewish leaders of the synagogues were very interested in going and listening and learning. They were, they were interested in at least finding out more about Christianity to some level. So they all gathered together. Verse 23, Paul preaches to them about the kingdom of God about Jesus from both the law and the prophets. No doubt how Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies about the coming of the kingdom. He's the king. He launched the messianic kingdom when he came. It wasn't postponed. It wasn't delayed. He brought it. You see it in the miracles that he did, casting out the demons. Uh, He clearly identified himself as fulfilling the messianic prophecies and his healing the blind and, and the lame walking and preaching the gospel. Probably the majority, verse 24, would not believe. And agree with one another, verse 25. 
they began to clearly says the Holy Spirit spoke, which is interesting because in the Old Testament context, it's Yahweh who's speaking, but Paul clearly understands that the Holy Spirit is God because he says the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. And then he quotes this amazing passage starting in verse 26 and 27 that comes from Isaiah chapter 6. Now this is a very famous passage. In fact, I'd like for us to turn back to Isaiah chapter 6 and just review this passage in its context. Because Paul understood the context. The Jewish leaders that were there understood the context. And this was basically a word of warning, a word of judgment upon the Jewish unbelievers. So Isaiah chapter 6, again, is one of the most familiar passages in the Old Testament because it begins with Isaiah seeing this incredible vision of the glory of God. Verse 1, the Lord is sitting on His throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. The seraphim are standing above Him with six wings. One called out to another, verse 3, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The foundations of the thresholds begin to tremble at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. So, Isaiah has this incredible vision of the glory, the holiness of God. And so he immediately becomes aware of his own sinfulness. Because the closer you get to a holy God, the more you see your own unholiness. The more you see your own sin, which requires the need for ongoing confession and repentance of sin. So Isaiah in verse 5 says, Woe is me, for I'm ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim took a burning coal from the altar with tongs, touched his mouth. Verse 7 said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. So now Isaiah experiences this forgiveness of his sin. The holiness of God has revealed his sin, his unholiness. But this coal which purifies his mouth is a, an outward token, a means, if you will, of, of God forgiving him of his sins. Of course, it's through his faith and he was a prophet. He trusted in God. So. But it's an outward symbol of burning away the sin. At this point in verse 8, Isaiah says, I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And at this point, Isaiah, now knowing that though he's a man of unclean lips and unholy, has been forgiven of his sin, he's very eager to serve the Lord. And that should be our testimony and witness as well. We who are sinners, but we've been forgiven of, the, of, of our sin. By the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ and faith in Him, we should be desiring to serve Him. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Reference to the Trinity. 
And then Isaiah said, here I am, send me, send me, I'll go, I'll do it. So now the Lord begins to tell Isaiah, okay, appreciate you volunteering. Here's your ministry. And your ministry is going to be one of not saving Israel, but hardening of their hearts. That's your ministry. So then in verse 9 and 10, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Their, de- their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise they may see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return and be healed. And that is what Paul is quoting to these Jews in Rome. That's his bon voyage message he gives to them. You're leaving. Let these words ring in your heart and mind. Because you are basically responding to the Gospel just as Israel responded to Yahweh in the Old Testament. And the ministry of Isaiah, in effect, is being carried out by me in your presence because you are hardening your hearts to the Gospel. And then in verse 11, Isaiah said, well, how, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. In other words, Isaiah, you're going to go and you're going to preach and you're going to minister. And very few, if any, will come to faith. In fact, your ministry is going to be one of hardening and blinding and deafening their ears. And Isaiah said, well, how long will I do this? And he says, until I bring judgment upon the people. And Israel is like a mighty tree, a terebinth, an oak and it will be toppled, I will chop it to the ground. Now this will literally be fulfilled through the invasion of the Assyrians in 722 B.C., who invade the northern kingdom Israel and devastate it. Then later on, the Babylonians will come in 586 B.C. They will enter into Judea. They will sack Jerusalem, tear it down, destroy the temple, All of this is because of the hardness of their heart. Their unwillingness to believe the Gospel. But at the very end, out of that stump that is left, the tree has fallen over. It's been chopped down by the wrath of God for their unbelief. There is a stump. And out of that stump is going to sprout the stem of Jesse. And that will be fulfilled a messianic promise of the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who will ultimately be the Redeemer and grow a new tree, if you will, out of the the remnant of the old tree. And He will be the source of life and salvation and glory among His people. So that's the context. The judgment aspect that follows the verses that Paul quotes very much was familiar to the Jews that were listening to him. So they understood back in Acts 28. They understood that when Paul quotes in verse 26 and 27 out of Isaiah chapter 6, 
that that judgment passage follows right afterwards. And they know what Paul is saying to them. That if you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you turn a deaf ear to it and harden your heart against the gospel, you too will be judged. And in fact, that's what they will do. And in fact, that is what will happen to them. This event took place probably around 60 A.D. In 10 more years, the Romans will come in. They'll destroy Jerusalem again. They'll destroy the temple again. So there's a a reef echo. There's a double fulfillment, if you will, of this pronouncement of judgment upon Israel. So this is a very, very important passage. Jesus quoted it four times in the Gospels. Three of those is is really the same occurrence when He's teaching the people the parables. And His disciples say, why do you teach everything in parables? Because He explained the meaning to them, but not to the rest of the people. And Jesus quoted this very same passage. It's to prevent them from understanding. So I'm going to give them the, the kingdom truth in parables. They won't understand. And they'll continue to harden their heart and reject this truth. Three times he quoted this same. At least Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record him recording, uh, preaching and, and reciting the same passage in judgment upon the Jews of his ministry. And then there's a second time that Jesus quotes this. And this is in John chapter 12. He quotes the same passage. But there he says, this is why the Jews are in unbelief. John chapter 12, uh, verse 40. This is why they're in unbelief. Because God has hardened their hearts. So even though they harden their hearts themselves, God also hardens their hearts. And Jesus says in John 12, this is why they don't believe. Because God has hardened their hearts. So it's a very interesting passage. And what Paul is doing in Acts 28 is pointing out to these Jews, you unbelievers, you are fulfilling the role of your fathers who rejected God. You're doing exactly the same thing. And this pronouncement of judgment that Isaiah brought upon them is still true for you too if you continue in unbelief. So it's a very strong warning that he's sending them out the door with these words ringing in their ears. Now let's uh, quickly walk through this passage. If you look at this in verse 28, you find, um, I'm sorry, verse uh, 26. You find first their spiritual condition being reflected in this passage. Again, Acts 28, verse 26. Go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. In other words, you have a habitual, perpetual problem with your hearing and seeing. You hear with your outer ears, but you do not have inner ears to really hear and understand what you're hearing. You can see with your eyes, but you really don't understand what you're seeing. So that is their spiritual condition. You hear, but you never listen. You see, but you'll never understand. So Isaiah, which Paul is quoting, 
pointed out the sad truth that the Israelites had perpetually resisted God and turned to idols. And that's the whole history of Israel for the most part in the Old Testament. Even though they were God's chosen people, they were a rebellious, idolatrous people through most of their history. The Jewish leaders in Rome, Paul in effect is saying, you're no different. Rightly did the Holy Spirit speak to your fathers. And basically what Paul is indicating is that he's saying the same thing to you as well. God had stretched out His hands to the Jews in the Gospel, but most refused. Paul has explained to them as clearly as possible the Gospel of Christ from the law and from the prophets. Paul, had, from morning till evening, Paul had been laying out that Jesus Christ is Messiah. Jesus Christ is a Messianic King. He's the prophet. He's the priest. And he, he spent all day from the Scriptures showing these Jews that Jesus Christ was fulfilling all these prophecies. And yet they refused to believe. They hardened their hearts instead. So their spiritual condition is found in verse 26. You'll keep on... And notice this is going to be ongoing for the nation. For, for the majority of the Jews. You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. They have hardened their hearts. And then in verse 27a, the first half of this verse, we find the spiritual cause of their spiritual condition in verse 26. So in verse 27, the spiritual cause. He says, for... Here's the reason why you're going to keep on hearing and not understand. For the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes. So the reason for the spiritual condition is because they basically have a total spiritual shutdown of their own faculties. Their heart, their ears, their eyes have all been hardened. They've all been made dull. They don't work right. Which causes them to respond in unbelief to the things that they're hearing. Now what causes this? Well, you could, you could explain it from two directions. Number one, their own inner depravity. That's the first explanation. They are guilty of hardening their own heart. And that's kind of the natural course of our own sinfulness. It's kind of like pouring concrete. It naturally hardens over time. Our sin nature, we're born with a sin nature, we're born depraved, and it just gradually over time becomes harder and harder against the things of God. It becomes hardened, just like concrete. It starts out spiritually dead in rebellion, but it gets worse as time goes on. So their own personal depravity is to blame. Jeremiah said this about Israel. The heart is more deceitful than all else. Desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's their heart. That's what Jeremiah said. Their heart is sick. It's incurably sick and diseased. Isaiah 29 verse 13. God says they remove their heart far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote so their hearts are hardened 
They've hardened their own hearts from their own inward spiritual depravity. Because the heart of man by nature is hostile toward God. The natural man doesn't understand, doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to him. He can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised. That's the heart of man. So the, the condition in verse 26 is explained from the fact that their heart is dull. Their ears barely hear. They're basically deaf. And they've closed their eyes. They've intentionally closed their eyes. It's a self-imposed blindness. They do not want to see. They do not want to hear. They do not want to believe. That's because of their own inward depravity. And sadly, you cannot change this condition. Jeremiah chapter 13 said, you can no more change your heart than an Ethiopian can change his skin or a leopard his spots. See, only God can change the heart. And that's why in Ezekiel, God promised that eventually He would take out the heart of stone and give some of them a heart of flesh that would be able to see and hear and respond. But God must do it. Apart from that, they cannot change their own heart. But there's another aspect. Not only do they harden their hearts, but God also hardens their heart. And this is the emphasis of Jesus in John 12 when He quotes the same passage. He makes it clear that God is the one hardening their hearts. So they're born with a depraved nature that turns away against God. And God in judgment upon them will harden their heart all the more. So it's like a double hardening. The first one from their own depraved nature and then God in righteous judgment for their unbelief and their sin. Isaiah 29 verse 10 says, The Lord has poured over you, Israel, a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes. So God has pronounced judgment upon them for their sin and their unbelief. So they've hardened their own heart. And then God has hardened it on another deeper level. Which means that they're in a hopeless condition. Now all of that is really understood by the Jews, I think, when he's quoting these two verses. But look at the the ultimate spiritual consequence of this. The second half of verse 27. See, their heart is dull, their ears are deaf, their eyes are blind. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return or repent, and I would heal them. In other words, the spiritual consequences is because of your, the cause of your condition is your own depravity, and God's judgment upon you, you're never going to turn. You're never going to believe. If you weren't in this condition, then you would see and hear and you would turn and I would heal you. But you're in this condition. And the cause is your own sinful hearts and God's just wrath and judgment upon you. And that's what prevents them from ever being able of of themselves to turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. If they would repent and turn to the Lord, they would be saved. 
but they cannot because their heart is dull, their eyes are blind, their ears are deaf. So this passage is a one that's designed to sting their conscience, to threaten them with God's wrath and judgment, that they're doing exactly the same thing the forefathers did that sent Isaiah's ministry to them, which ended up just hardening them all the more. And they were walking in exactly the same steps. So there's a design here to uh, at least show them the ultimate doom that they're facing. Then in verse 28, it says, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, for they will also listen. So in other words, Several times already, Paul in his ministry in the book of Acts, he goes to the synagogues. The Jews reject the gospel. They turn away from the gospel. Some of them get very hostile towards him. So he says, he kicks the dust off his feet and he says, okay, I'm going to go preach to the Gentiles. And he goes to the Gentiles and they receive the gospel. And many of them get saved. Same thing here. The Jews from the synagogues in Rome have the majority of them have refused to believe the gospel. So Paul again says in verse 28, this salvation of God that was offered to you, you Jews, which you have rejected, is now going to be offered to the Gentiles. Now notice he says in verse 28, at the end of the verse, they will also listen. Because God will extend grace to them. Remember all the way back in Acts 16, Lydia, verse 14, a Gentile, heard the Gospel. And then it says that God opened her heart so she could respond to the things that Paul was saying. So God is going to extend grace. He's going to change the hearts of Gentiles. And they will listen. You Jews will not listen. But the Gentiles will. So I'll take the Gospel to them. And notice also in verse 28, this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. The very same salvation offered to them. The very same Messiah offered to them. The very same kingdom offered to the Jews is now going to be preached to the Gentiles. So basically what the Jews could care less about having, which they just thought was junk laying on the ground, the Gentiles, by the grace of God working in their heart, will see it as pearls of great price. And they will treasure Christ. And they will confess their sins. And they'll come to Jesus for salvation. they by faith then would become the true sons of Abraham. In Galatians 3.7, Paul makes it very clear. You're not a son of Abraham by your ethnic descendancy because you're a physical Jew. No, you're a son of Abraham purely by faith. A Gentile who comes to faith in Jesus Christ is a son, a child of Abraham. And an heir, Galatians 3.29. So this raises a question, well then, what is God's plan for the Jews? It seems like so many of them, 
hear the gospel, but they don't believe. And even today, there's very few Jewish people that I run into that are actually become Christians, believers. So what is God's plan for Israel? What is God's plan for the Jews? Well, Paul, a number of years earlier, had written his letter to the Romans to explain God's plan for Israel. And I thought with the few minutes we have remaining, let's just walk through that. Because this passage in Acts 28 certainly raises a question, what's going to happen to Israel? What's going to happen to the Jews? So let's turn back in our Bibles, actually turn forward to the book of Romans and turn to chapter 9. And we're going to do a real quick walk through chapter 9, 10, 11 just to get a big picture for what God is doing with Israel and with Jews. Most of them are in unbelief back then and today. Is there going to be a future revival? Or is Israel still a separate people of God that will be separate from the church? And Paul deals with all of that in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Let's start out in Romans chapter 9. He begins by raising the question, how do we explain the fact that Israel as a people have been given all of these blessings from God and yet so many of them are getting saved? He says, for example, in verse 3, I could wish I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are the Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. See, that now that's the question. That's why people were saying, wait a second, Jesus Christ is a Jewish Messiah. He was promised to Israel. He's a descendant from Israel. Christ has come. The Jewish Messiah has come. Why has not Israel accepted her Messiah? Why are so many of the Jews in rebellion and rejecting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? How can that be? Their long-awaited for Emmanuel has come. And yet, so many of the Jews are casting Him away. They even crucified their Messiah. The Jewish people crucified Him. The majority are not accepting Him. How can this be? Has the Word of God failed? Has God's promises to Israel failed? And now starts his answer. Verse 6. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. In other words, and your Bible translation may word that a little bit differently. But basically what Paul is saying is not every physical Jew is a true Jew to whom the promises are going to be fulfilled to. In other words, within the outward physical nation of Israel, there is a smaller spiritual Israel within the nation. So he says again, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. You can be descended physically from Abraham. That doesn't make you the Israel that's going to get the covenant promises fulfilled in your life. 
most of the Jews will not be in that Israel, that true spiritually saved Israel, the elect, the remnant. And so he begins to say it is the remnant, the chosen remnant within the nation of Israel to whom God has always intended the covenant blessings to be fulfilled in. Not the entire nation, but the remnant. And so in the following verses, he says in verse 8, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. So it's not the children of the flesh. No, it's the children of the promise. So you can be a child of the flesh, a physical Jew, that doesn't make you a child of the promise. Well, who's a child of the promise within Israel? It's the ones God has chosen. It's His elect within the nation. So Abraham had many sons, Ishmael, but it was Isaac that God chose for the covenant to go through. Isaac married Rebekah. Rebekah had twins within her room, within her, her uh, womb. They were uh, womb mates or roommates within the womb or what. But she had twins. And yet, look at verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born, not done anything good or bad, so it's not based on their works at all, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand not because of works, but because of Him who calls. And then in verse 13, God therefore said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Both from Jewish heritage, twins within the womb of the same mother, God says, Jacob I choose, I love, Esau I don't, I hate, I reject. So God is the one who determines that within the nation of Israel, not all physical Jews are going to be saved or inherit the Messiah and His salvation. Only the chosen within the nation. The remnant, if you will. Well now, verse 14, well then, is God unjust? How can He choose Jacob and, and, and not choose Esau? How can He discriminate? How can He show grace to one and not the other? And then in the following verses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 15. And then in verse 18, so He has mercy on whom He desires and He hardens whom He desires. So it's ultimately according to God's mercy that He chooses some within Israel changes their heart of stone into a heart of flesh so that now they can see and hear and their heart is changed so now they can believe in their Messiah. But it's God's choice. It doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And then starting in verse 19 down through verse 29, Paul then emphasizes that it's the remnant of Jews who are chosen by God's grace. And this is nothing new. This has been prophesied throughout the Old Testament. So starting in verse 19, Paul uses this potter clay analogy that comes from Isaiah and Jeremiah. And he says, you say, well, how, how can God find fault with me and reject me? Well, God's the potter. You're the clay. He can do whatever He wants to with you. You're a sinner. You're unworthy. You don't deserve anything. 
If God gives you mercy, it's because He chooses to give you mercy, but He doesn't have to give you mercy because you deserve His judgment as a sinner. He's the potter, you're the clay. The clay can't rise up and say to the potter, why did you put my handle on this side? I wanted my handle on that side. You can't complain to the potter. So he goes back into the Old Testament and he begins to show this idea of God's sovereignty. And then he begins to work down through the passage a little further and he begins to quote Hosea and Isaiah by saying that God is the one who chooses. And if you will, look at verse 27. Isaiah cries out according, uh, concerning Israel. Now this is Isaiah saying about the nation of Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. See, that's the true Israel within the nation of Israel. That's the spiritual Israel within the outer physical Israel. And no matter how many Jews there are, within the nation of Israel. It is only the remnant that God has chosen that will be saved. Not the entire nation. That was never God's intention. He chose them, but not to save all of them. Only the remnant within the nation. And then down in chapter 9, verse 30, Paul then explains that the Jews who turn away once they hear the Gospel, they do so because they're seeking their own righteousness by their own works. They're not after receiving God's free gift of righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. No, 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 no. They want to establish their own personal righteousness according to the works of the law. And that's from Romans chapter 9, verse 30, all the way through the end of chapter 10. And in that passage, Paul makes it very clear Because some would say, well, maybe they didn't hear. No, he says they heard the gospel. They heard Isaiah the prophet. They heard the prophetic messages. The Jews today are hearing the gospel. They hear the gospel. It's near them. They don't have to go far to hear it. But they are committed to trying to get to heaven by earning their own righteousness according to the works of the law. And so basically that covers that whole section all the way to the end of chapter 10. They heard the Gospel, but they did not believe. There's no excuse. They heard it, but they hardened their hearts. They would not believe. And then we come to chapter 11. And what Paul is emphasizing here is that God is still saving Jews. He's not saving all of them, but He's still saving some. So in verse 1 of chapter 11, I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So in light of all this, some would say, well then, has God just totally rejected all Israel? And Paul said, no, I'm a Jew. God saved me. And then he says, in the days of Elijah, there were 7,000 who didn't bow the knee to Baal. God had a remnant there too. So He's still saving Jews. He's just not saving all of them. He's saving His chosen elect remnant. And then look at verse 5. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. 
But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it. I.e. the remnant obtained it. That is a salvation through their Messiah. And the rest were hardened. And this really ties us back into the Isaiah 6 passage and many other passages. Look how Paul quotes some of the passages in verse 8. God gave them a spirit of stupor. Gave who? The majority of Israel. Now they had already hardened their hearts, but as a righteous judgment upon their own self-hardening, God adds another layer. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David said, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. So this has become an ongoing perpetual judgment upon the nation of Israel for crucifying their Messiah and for the majority rejecting Him in unbelief. So Paul makes it very clear that God is still saving, but He's not saving all. He's saving the remnant, the chosen remnant. And the rest are hardened. And then in verse 11 through 24, Paul then begins to say what's happening now within the church is that God is pruning off the olive tree. The olive tree represents the covenantal plan of God for His chosen people. The olive tree is oftentimes a symbol for Israel. So what he says starting in verse 11 and following is that God is pruning off, cutting off the dead branches, the unbelieving Jews off the tree. And the believing Gentiles who are off of a wild olive, He is grafting into that same tree. Not two trees, a tree for the nation of Israel and a tree for the church. No, the unbelieving Jews are being broken off and the believing Gentiles are being grafted in. But it's just one olive tree. And He begins to explain to them that the reason for this is that the Gentiles coming in and inheriting their promises. They are children of Abraham by faith in Christ. They're heirs of Abraham. They get Israel's promise of the Holy Spirit that was promised to Israel. But now the Gentiles, again, remember Cornelius back in Acts chapter 10. They're getting these blessings because they are true sons of Abraham just like the believing Jewish remnant is. And they're all receiving these blessings. And he says, the Gentiles are coming in to provoke the Jews to jealousy. (coughs) Excuse me. That hopefully more of them will come to a saving knowledge of, of Christ. And then we come to verse 25 and 26. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved. 
So then he brings us to this verse where he speaks of all Israel being saved. Uh, There are lots of views on how to interpret this. It certainly doesn't mean that all Jews of all ages are going to be saved. Um, Jesus said to the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew 23, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Not all are going to be saved, obviously. To Capernaum, Jesus said that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So only the remnant are going to be saved. Not all Jews. Sometimes I, there's someone down in Texas that teaches that. But you cannot show that from Scripture. So what does verse 26 mean? Well, some believe that it's linked to verse 25, that once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then, that, then all Israel will be saved. There will be a final end time revival within the nation of Israel. I hope that's true. I'm not convinced that's true from this passage anyway. I'll explain in a second. But if that is true, and right before Christ comes back, there's a great revival among the nation of Israel, and many come to faith in Jesus Christ, they will be regrafted back into that same one olive tree where all the Gentiles are grafted into. They're not going to have their own separate tree. They're all going to be mixed in the church of Jesus Christ. So I hope that's true. But the problem is, if you look at verse 26, it doesn't say, and the fullness of the Gentiles will come in, and then all Israel will be saved. As if once we get to the fullness of the Gentiles, and the last Gentile is saved, then right after that, all Israel will be saved. That's not what it's saying. The Greek word here does not imply the concept of then or after. It's in this way, in this manner. Well, what does that mean? Well, in this manner, all Israel will be saved. It could be that during the partial hardening of Israel, as the Gentiles are coming in, in this manner, all Israel will be saved. As God gradually saves the remnant of the Jews throughout the age. And that's another view, which I think has uh, probably more in support of it. My two cents. Lots of different views on this. Lots of different views about the nation of Israel. Uh, But uh, Paul is very clear to point out that there is a true Israel within the nation of Israel and they are the ones who get the covenant promises and the blessings and salvation and the kingdom and the Messiah and the Spirit of God. It's the remnant that He has chosen by His sovereign grace within the nation. Whether there's an end time revival among the Jews, I hope so. I would love to see that. Though this passage is not, uh, I think, a slam dunk on that particular view. Let me kind of wrap this up by just saying, what's the, um, what's the lesson for us today? Paul has just told the Jews in Rome that the unbelievers are basically filling again the prophecy of Isaiah. That Isaiah's ministry was one of hardening their hearts. Of of them hardening their own hearts. God adding another layer of hardening on. So so what is all that to tell us today? Well, I think the, the, the part of the lesson of the nation of Israel is to teach the church and those who are in the church 
that you can be blessed with many outward religious privileges as Israel was and still not be saved. There's a warning to religious people here in particular within the church. Israel was blessed with the covenant, the Old Testament covenants. God chose them and set them apart from all the other nations of the earth to be special, to be different, to have all of these incredible privileges. It did not guarantee their salvation though. When it says they're God's chosen people, it doesn't mean they're all chosen for salvation. Only the remnant is. But look at what they had as a nation. They had the very covenants of God. They had the oracles of God. They had the prophets preaching to them. They had the law of Moses. They had the priesthood. All the regulations of worship, the singing, the sacrifices. They saw all the incredible miracles of the exodus when God rescued them out of Egypt. When they saw the plagues and all of the dividing of the Red Sea and the miracles of Elijah and Elisha throughout their history. They had all of these things. And yet, the majority never came to put their trust in Yahweh. Most of them turned away from God to worship idols. Just read the Old Testament. It's full of their apostasy in every age. To be God's chosen people in the nation of Israel did not equal them being God's saved people. They were blessed with incredible privileges, but most of them did not take advantage of that, but hardened their heart instead. And I think the warning for us today is don't be like Judas, who lived with Christ and ate with Christ and traveled with Christ and saw His miracles and heard His sermons, witnessed His divinity, saw His sinless humanity, and yet He never, never put His trust in Christ. He never bowed the knee to Christ as King. And there are many in the church today that are in this perilous condition. And don't confuse your outward privileges with God's saving grace. You can be raised in a Christian home and have godly parents and not be saved. You can be baptized and join a church and be involved in church and go to hell. You can go to a Christian school and read the Bible and pray and do good works and still be unforgiven in your trespasses. You can have a great knowledge of the Christian faith, but your heart may not be changed. I mean, how many of us have grieved over the sad circumstances of Ravi Zacharias and what has happened with him? So the question is, it's not look at your outward privileges. Oh, we have a wonderful church. Look at the building that we have. We have the Bible. We sing. We... But has your heart been changed? Have you actually been convicted of your sin and realized that you stand under the judgment of God and you've turned to Jesus Christ alone and cried out to Him and asked Him to save you and forgive you and give you a new heart if you, if you haven't done that yet? Has our heart been convicted of our sin to the point to where I turn from it? And receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And is there evidence in your life of that heart change? Oh, we're all still going to struggle with sin. Please don't misunderstand. 
we will not be sinless. We will not be perfect. We will have our struggles as Christians. But do you desire to please Christ? Do you want to obey Him as your King? Do you want to serve Him? Do you love Him? Are you thankful that Jesus died on the cross and shed His blood and endured the wrath of God for your sins? Are you thankful in your heart and you express that to Him from time to time? Lord, thank You for forgiving me. I still deserve to go to hell. But I thank You that You have saved me and washed me of all of my sins, past, present, and future. Do you draw near to Him for help when you're struggling? To find grace or forgiveness on a daily basis? Is there evidence of His, of His grace in your heart and life? Are you drawn to the Scriptures and find consolation and encouragement and blessing there? See, you can be blessed with many outward privileges. That's what Israel teaches us. You can have all these promises, all these covenants. You can have all these good things, the worship stuff all around you, and you can still die and go to hell because you've never truly come in faith to Jesus Christ. That's part of the function of the nation of Israel is to warn us of how outwardly righteous and holy you can be and inwardly still be deader than a doornail spiritually. So how does it stand with you this morning? These Jews that did not believe in Christ were very religious. They attended synagogue every week. They were there reading the Torah. They were singing. They were in their, their services regularly and faithfully. But they would die and go to hell. Because they had not personally humbled themselves and come to Jesus Christ for the gift of everlasting life. Well, may God seal that grace within our hearts. And if there's any here that have not... I mean, you can even come out on a day like this to church and not know the Lord. But may the Lord, by His grace, open our hearts if they're still closed and grant us His grace of repentance and faith that we might truly know the Messiah, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior and King. May God give us that grace. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank You, Lord, for the boldness of the Apostle Paul to speak truth to these very righteous, self-righteous, really, Jews who were in His presence, who had a great knowledge of the Bible, but were unwilling to yield and submit to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, we just uh, thank You that the Apostle Paul, when he understood that, was still able to warn them with a passage that should have struck fear up and down their spine. But Lord, we just pray that in Your mercy and grace that You would open each of our eyes that we would see the glory of Jesus Christ, that we would see the depths of our own sin like Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am unclean. And that we would turn to Jesus Christ who alone can wash us. And Lord, may that be true of every heart here this morning. Grant us Your grace. Change our hearts 
that we might see Jesus Christ and trust Him and love Him and serve Him as our Lord and as our Savior. And we ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.